all that training and all that time and all those nights were really worth it for this one Marine in that moment. I don't know. It was just a really, a moment I'm really proud of. Welcome to War Docs. This show brings you a firsthand behind the scenes look into the mission, unique opportunities, and deployed experiences of military physicians. From state-of-the-art hospitals in the United States to the most austere environments across the globe, War Docs has you covered. On this episode of War Docs, we are privileged to speak with Dr. Bonnie Hardstein. She attended Boston University School of Medicine and initially trained in pediatrics at the National Capital Education Consortium. And then she completed an emergency medicine residency at Sashek in San Antonio. She is a full bird colonel in the Army and currently serves as the emergency medicine consultant to the Army Surgeon General and is also the director of the Army Medical Department Quality and Safety Center in San Antonio. She has deployed to the CENTCOM AOR twice and has also led multiple humanitarian missions in Central America. She has numerous academic and leadership awards and has received the Bronze Star Medal with one Oak Leaf Cluster. Welcome to War Docs. It's a pleasure to have Dr. Bonnie Hartstein on with us today. Thanks for joining us, Bonnie. Great to be here. Thanks. Thanks, Doug. Well, I'm going to get it started off with, you know, just a quick question of how did you get into military medicine? So that's kind of a, I'm going to call it a two-pronged question. First of all, the big question is how did I get in the military? Because I actually started my career in the medical service corps through ROTC. And my, my father was a army reservist and a strong believer in the military. And so when I'm a strong believer in a state college education and anything else from your own state, um, you know, was, uh, kind of on the table for uh, individual creative financing. So basically I got an ROTC scholarship to go out of state and based on his suggestion that, uh, hey, I, or his algorithm that, hey, I was in Girl Scouts. So that meant I could be in the army, which I, I'm not sure how he, how he did the logic. And I wasn't even really sure what I was signing up for, but I went to the University of Michigan out of Maryland on a scholarship for ROTC. And, and that was my introduction to the military. And after I spent several years as a medical service Corps officer. I had always kind of been pre-med in college. And uh, so I got I, I got a little bit bamboozled, if you will, into the military. <laughs> um, and uh, yeah, he assured me if I went to Michigan, I could drop the scholarship after a year and stay in as opposed to Duke or some other more expensive schools. And after a year, when I said, hey, I think I've done enough of this army stuff, I'll just stay at Michigan and not do it. He said, well, then you can go back to Maryland. So that was my introduction to the military. And I do actually have a fairly strong, even medical military. My dad was not a doctor. He was in the Corps of Engineers, but I have had two uncles, great uncles who were army war veterans, uh, both doctors and one in the army, one in the air force. So I have come from a strong family tradition of, um, military officers. Where on the battlefield is an emergency room doctor needed and best utilized? I think emergency physicians have a very broad breadth of knowledge. I actually trained initially in pediatrics, so I have a background in primary care. And as emergency physicians, we fill roles from the point of care, point of injury at a battalion aid station, all the way through the most highly specialized forward deployed uh, surgical teams. So we can kind of do a little bit of everything. And, and I've been in positions where we do a little bit of everything in a highly kinetic battlefield where you have high fatality, high injury rate in austere locations without a lot of um, established evacuation systems. Emergency physicians are probably needed 
at the point of injury or, you know, in battalion aid stations, roll ones in a more developed battlefield, you probably could bring them a little bit into higher echelons and to roll two and roll three locations. How is uh, ER practice different in the military than, let's say, in the civilian sector? I think that what I just described, where emergency physicians are are filling multiple roles, uh, makes us unique in the military. You know, in the in the civilian sector, an emergency physician's role is in the emergency department, and then of course you have varying types of platforms of care in the civilian sector where. You can have community hospitals, university hospitals, you know, and and various levels of trauma care. But the emergency physician is the entry to the hospital system. In uh, the military, the same applies. In general, we're filling leadership roles and strategic roles at the higher echelons. And then in the front lines, we're also filling battalion aid station roles and doing some probably more primary care than you have in the civilian sector than we would otherwise, you know, than we, than we would normally do by our training. And then also filling those roles in the middle, which is a little bit more traditional emergency medicine and really kind of deployed emergency roles, emergency medicine settings, as well as the field, you know, resuscitative surgical units, et cetera. How do we know if an ER physician is ready to handle the kind of things seen on deployment? How do you know? Well, you know, I think that's a bigger question for the military, where we're trying to make sure that people out of training, years out of training, have maintained their skill sets and are still ready to go. But emergency medicine residency training is a robust training environment. And I think we go on the faith that if you've completed emergency medicine training in one of our programs or a civilian program, and you've maintained your certification in accordance with American Board of Emergency Medicine specialties, that that you're ready to go. I think that we can do potentially a better job at quantifying those skill sets. And we're doing that and we're developing those in the military to know, quote unquote, that people are up to date on their skills. But at this point, we take that a little bit at face value, that if you're board certified and maintain your board certification, then you're good to go. So we know that you completed two residencies. And so tell us a little bit about your first assignment when you finished your ER residency. Did you feel prepared? So right out of emergency medicine residency, I went into a position that was a a brigade surgeon position, which at the time was not identified as an emergency medicine spot. I deployed to Iraq and it was a long deployment and I went as a brigade surgeon. And I was in a medical leadership position overseeing about 5,000 soldiers distribute around Iraq for their medical readiness. And then we had a small role one. We had about 13,000 people on our base in Camp Taji, Iraq. One of my colleagues who had recently graduated with me was at that Brigade Support Battalion Role 2. And it was during the surge and we had a lot of casualties coming onto our post out from just outside the gate because IEDs were not well mitigated with up armored Humvees, et cetera. So we were getting a lot of casualties and we did not have a very high level response on our post, but I was emergency medicine trained and, 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 and my, uh, my colleague was as well. And there was a few other people, there were about 20 doctors on post. So when you ask, was I prepared for what I did? So my exact job was really to take care of this sustainment brigade population, which was largely National Guardsmen and reservists. And if you've spent much time around the National Guard and Reserve, you'll know that their medical care is really mirrors the country's medical care, which is fragmented and not necessarily super supportive of chronic conditions. And they were 
largely in a more advanced and aged group. So we had a lot of people come to my aid station with chest pain, essentially other things that would otherwise have walked into the emergency department and required uh, elevation of care immediately. So, uh, you know, just it wasn't really your typical role one sprained ankles of the young 21 year old. It was more the chest pain in the 52 year old with uh, chronic diabetes who was not well maintained. So we handled a lot of really emergency type conditions in my aid station, but more importantly, in the in the BSB, in the in the, the role two, where my friend Gary was as an ER doc, but really just in a, again, also in just a pretty much regular job, GMO type job, we developed a pager system on our post so that the ER docs could respond to um, what was coming in at regular intervals of uh, real trauma just from outside the gate. So uh, in the middle of the night, I was, you know, responding to trauma call at this battalion aid station where we would have guys blown up off post and and running across a field. I finally convinced them to give me a vehicle because it was getting a little dicey to run across a big field in the dark. So my skills were needed in in all capacities in that environment. And I felt very well prepared. How about when you were deployed as a emergency physician and that was your primary role? So I deployed to Afghanistan as a as an emergency physician in an actual emergency physician role. And that was in a pretty austere location in southern Afghanistan. We were the hospital system. We were a small slice of our hospital system. I think it was the earlier stages of the um, FRST, the, the forward resuscitative surgical team. We sort of had a slice of the hospital. But we were supporting mostly Marines, actually, in southern Afghanistan. And it was one of those things where it was largely quiet for most of the time. And then we would get these absolutely... Um, devastating, wildly dramatic mass cows where we would have extremely injured people sometimes coming in in many, you know, as, as, in many at a time. And so I was myself and one other emergency medicine physician, two surgeons and a radiologist and a very strong surgical team uh, in, in terms of the nurses. So we were always ready and often bored, but never totally down and you know, there was a, I used to run a lot so that there was a big running trail, you know, and, and my, my colleague, my ER physician colleague was also a runner, and, but you could be on a six mile run and like two miles in, get paged and have to like, boy, come right back. Cause a lot of the time it was fine and you'd be on that run and it was no big deal, but we sort of had a new rule that like no one could really be that far out. <laughs> at any given time, because you never knew. And we did get some pretty significant casualties. So we had MIs, you know, myocardial infarction, heart attacks in the middle of the night, where we would have to, you know, remember my colleague put, pushed lytics, you know, uh, thrombolytics, usually in the States, we have bypass surgery, and people are able to go to the cath lab and have those stents placed and all those surgeries done. But where we were there, and we had a lot of contractors who were also kind of advanced in their age and not necessarily well-maintained chronic condition. So is there anything you know now that you wish you knew on either of your deployments? I think that definitely deployments teach you that you learn that you can get through a lot more than you think you can. I developed a mantra that was being okay is a is a state of mind and not a condition of circumstance. I, I think you learn that you, you have to come to peace with kind of yourself because everything around you can be extremely chaotic, unknown, unpredictable and uncontrollable, including your family. Your family is at home waiting for you. I had two young children. I have one young, 
my daughter was at 13 months during my first deployment. I had two little kids when I left on my second deployment. And you just come to a place of understanding that things will be okay. So I guess I could tell myself, hey, it's it's going to be okay no matter what. And and I think it's a it's in some way a gift of your deployments to just realize that you can get through a lot more than you think you can. Do you have a most memorable case in either of your deployments? You know, my first deployment, I thought about this question. Um, you know, I don't I don't want to go into too many details um, so as to continue to protect kind of the identity of people that I took care of. But uh, in, in my first deployment, there was a a very touchy diagnosis that, that I, like I said, I, I won't go into, but it was a, a very, very charged and personal diagnosis of a person in our command. And when you're on deployment, your your non-medical colleagues, you don't have a family with you. Your, your non-medical colleagues become your family and your friends and protecting the individual personal information of the people that you care for as we do as physicians becomes extraordinarily important um, because that's part of the integrity of who we are as physicians and speculation, gossip, questions run rampant uh, in a small environment where people are all amongst each other. So making sure you make the right diagnosis, even if it's a sensitive diagnosis of one of your patients and being able to, with a straight face, not leak any of that or not expose any of that personal information in a very closed fishbowl environment where everyone's asking and wondering and questioning you was one of the biggest challenges of my medical career. And and, and I hope I did right by that. I think I did, but that was um, extremely difficult, but important for the patient at hand and that person's protected information. And to come up with the right diagnosis because it, it, it was potentially life-saving to get to the right one and it wasn't easy. So, you know, eliciting the specialists that were there to help us and getting that person the right treatment that they needed, but yet still maintaining that HIPAA and personal responsibility to protect that information was difficult. And then I'll say in one deployment, when we got there, there was a bit of a different off-tempo or we, we really felt like that there wasn't as much of a, a need to, we weren't going to get as many, you know, things cut wax and wane when you're deployed. And basically we were handing off from the other team and they said, well, this is kind of the blood bank, the wa walking blood bank, but you won't ever have to use it. We never used it. It's not a big deal. And then and within a month or two, we had a very significant casualty who really needed blood that outstripped our supply significantly. And we had to enact the walking blood bank basically with very little information. The walking blood bank is basically where you take blood from people who show up and give it to the person in the OR immediately. And it was a rare blood type. It was like B positive blood, which is pretty rare. So we got that blood bank going pulled out the protocols, got everyone organized to, to accept the patients or the people who were going to give the blood. There was an announcement over the loudspeaker. People came and it was a very, it was a very moving scene. We had contractors, soldiers, anyone with this type of blood showed up. We figured out how to do it. And then we just ran it down to the OR and, uh, and saved this young Marine based on that walking blood bank. But that was, um, maybe that wasn't a diagnosis. We had some others I could talk about, but that just seeing those people just show up and we were giving them like Girl Scout cookies and crackers and they were sitting in the room just there just to help, you know, it was a, really a, a an act of human kindness for people to show up and do what they needed to do. And then we learned on the fly to, to actually draw that blood and bring it and do the right protocols and put it in the right bags. And it was something I'll never forget. You know? Do you have what you would consider a best save 
in your military career? I've had a few best saves and they always leave you very humbled because you think, you know, there, but for the grace of God go I that I did not miss that. I recently diagnosed a pulmonary embolism in a 25-year-old guy uh, just a few weeks ago in the emergency department. And he thought he had a pulled muscle from lifting weight. But And it was presented to me by a uh, transitional resident who did not have much experience in the emergency department and told me, kind of downplayed the whole thing. But, you know, I, I did a lot of time in pediatrics. I've had some pediatric saves where you just, I think... Uh, I have caught a few, I've caught, I don't, you know, I don't practice all the time now. I do, I do a largely uh, executive leadership administrative job with quality and safety, but I, I will say that listening to the patient's story for those of people who may be listening, who are entering medicine or are in medicine, maybe agree with me, maybe don't, but the patients often come in with the diagnosis in their story and it's in their story. You just have to listen to them. And when he said it wasn't just that he had this pain in his side, it was also that he couldn't do the things he had done and he couldn't lift the weights he had normally lifted without getting really winded or feeling really dizzy. And so, yeah, so that was um, getting a D-dimer on him. I've caught appendicitis in an 18-month-old, very unusual urinary anomalies and another very, very young child, just because the cry sounded weird to me, the baby would not stop crying. You're like, why is that baby still crying? You know, so yeah, I've had I've had a few. What is your most memorable non clinical story that's happened to you as a doctor that you didn't expect? When you're when you're deployed, like I said, you, you really do form a bond bonds with people that you are with, and you recreate your life and you recreate a, a full community around, uh, around your, your people. And, uh, you know, I, I won't go into, you know, too much detail. And I actually wrote an article about this recently in the Olive magazine. I'm a Jewish physician. I'm Jewish, you know, by faith. And when I deployed, I, I wound up becoming the lay leader on our post. So I wound up having a, uh, a Passover Seder in Afghanistan where I convinced the um, visiting rabbi who was in a, a who was coming to Leatherneck, which was a post pretty far, well, about 45 minutes and a 15 minute flight from where we were to come down and have this uh, Passover Seder on post. And I put it together in a hangar. And we had, by that point, garnered a lot of multi-denominational supporters to our group. And I had all my Mormon friends and Christian friends and people who had never been to a Passover Seder and we had this 50 person Passover Seder with this visiting rabbi. And he almost didn't come because the, uh, the whole thing got almost got canceled and air and by the flight, not being able to uh, take off because of bad weather, but he finally arrived and, and we had all, all these Passover sets that we had found in this old abandoned hangar there are uh, conics, you know, which is like a, the metal storage unit that were, uh, Passover military issue Passover kits, if you can believe it, with little dried like shank bones and and eggs and all the things that you put on the Passover plate. We had populated all these tables and cloths. My mother-in-law had sent tablecloths, and we had this whole big Passover seder, and uh, it was <laughs> it was pretty amazing. So I guess that was probably my most memorable non-clinical experience. What would you tell or what do you tell other physicians who maybe have never deployed what they should know or what they should do to prepare to deploy? You know, it goes back to a little bit about what I said before. You got to know your skills and be strong with what you know and have faith that what you know will, will, will carry you through if you've done your right training. And then you've got to get a little bit 
out of your comfort zone with your type A personality and your need to control everything. And you got to go kind of into the ride the wave moments. You know, you just got to, you know, know that you're there for the right reason and you're not going to be in control of a lot of your life, which is, which is a tricky thing, which is, which is difficult because we're controlling people, basically physicians. So I would say your kids are going to be fine at home, your family, you got to just do your job and know you'll come back in one piece, you know, hopefully you do. And that's all that's important. And the rest of it is gravy. And the rest of it is just make your friends with your people that you're there with, um, support the mission, and the rest will fall into place. As the consultant for emergency medicine physicians to the U.S. Army Surgeon General, what are the biggest current challenges that face military ER physicians? We've got a number. You know, we have a strong team of people. I, I, I don't claim to have all the answers, but emergency physicians, by virtue of our training, like I explained, we're capable and able to do all things that the Army needs us to do in all environments, but there's only so many of us. So strategically being placing us strategically in the right position, you know, using the resources wisely, and yet also keeping our skills up. Uh, I just recently had a chance to brief the secretary, the acting secretary of the army um, with an, you know, to, to defend a position against putting emergency physicians in every single battalion aid station everywhere. Because yes, at times in a very highly kinetic, immature battlefield, having an emergency medicine physician far forward is the right answer at that time. And as research has shown, and that's, you know, kind of where he was drawing on that idea it was based on research done during 0506 and in early part of Iraq, where, you know, some of actually my mentors wrote a paper about how the survivability in that environment was um, so much better when you had ER docs in battalion aid stations. But 99% of the time, those battalion aid stations are primary care, non emergency medicine platforms. So balancing the need for emergency physicians where they're needed at the time and space in a, in a highly kinetic battlefield against the reality of what the military really needs their battalion aid station docs to do regularly and, and the need to maintain skills across the board. Most of our hospitals are not level one trauma centers. We only really have one level one trauma center. So keeping people's skills to the point where they're able to do that tip of the spear work, but yet most of the time not exposed to it is one of our biggest challenges. It has been the most, you know, privileged space, to, you know, job that I've had in the military to, to lead the ER docs. I'm constantly in awe of the caliber and commitment and selfless service that people display in emergency position. We multi-talented people who can serve in every level. So there's just simply aren't enough of us. <laughs> so I, I saw on your CV that you've had uh, several opportunities to lead and participate in some humanitarian missions. Can you tell us a little bit about those opportunities that you had? Yeah, thanks for asking that. So before I was an emergency medicine physician, I was a pediatrician and I participated a lot in some humanitarian missions to uh, Central America. In that space, um, there was we were doing research on anemia uh, and malnutrition. Um, I taught in the humanitarian assistance course um, on diarrhea and and especially GI and, not, uh, and, and measles and some of the things that 
I, I think it, so. Your question, like, what have I done in humanitarian mission, in humanitarian medicine? So I participated in research and also in these med readies where we would, you know, see people in um, a, a clinic, you know, a kind of a pop-up clinic environment in very austere locations to uh, deliver frontline medical care and 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 preventive medicine services like anti-helminthic or you know worm, you know, deworming and measles vaccines, but very humbling when you see environments like that to realize, you know, how important and how evolved our care is in the States, but how close we can be to not having distributed the right amount of care to people if, you know, just the basic things that, that can really make a big difference in the world uh, in medicine. You have a lot of experience in quality and safety. Does the military look at this differently than the civilian healthcare sector? Quality and safety is we're all in in all aspects of medicine, civilian and military, trying to find our way and figure out how to deliver the safest care. And I don't know that anyone's really got a silver bullet or cracked the nut on that. I think we have both great opportunity in the military that we've leveraged, and also we have some barriers. And so in the opportunity space is the ability for us to leverage our command and control Leadership is an extraordinarily important element of delivering quality and safe care because leaders set the standard for a culture of safety and can uh, demonstrate and, and can clearly articulate if the mission's number one, if, if, if quality and safety or safety, say, is the number one priority, then leaders can clearly deliver that message. So in that element, in that way, we're more advanced, but we also have to we, we also have our own hierarchical structure. And one of the barriers to say, delivery of safe care is that people don't feel empowered to speak up. So at the same time, we have this great ability to kind of direct how people do. We also bump against the challenges that a hierarchical structure presents, which means you have to level the field and make sure everyone feels empowered to speak. So it's almost like a senior leader has to say, listen to me, everyone has to speak up. <laughs> you know, it's like, it's a little bit um, of a paradox. So I think we're as committed as any other organization. And we have the opportunities that every other organization has. And, and I think that we're actually leading the way now. But it's a journey that all medical systems are on. And, and we have both the power to do it, but also our we can be our own worst enemy, if we don't recognize the barriers that having the structure of um, of rank uh, and hierarchy present. So it's kind of a double-edged sword. So let's say one of your kids or one of their friends is in college and they're interested in medicine and they wanted your advice about the military. What would you tell them? You know, I'd say, I, and I have, and, I, and actually my daughter's, you know, she's only 13, um, but interested. And she says she wants to be an, an ER doc or a, an army doctor. Although she doesn't want to go to war <laughs> or she doesn't want to shoot anyone. She doesn't say not war, but uh, you know, my, my advice for any young person who wants to be in the military would be to do it. Life's journey is difficult and you want to do something meaningful in your life. And the happiest and most fulfilled you can be is by giving yourself to a higher purpose. Um, if you find that outside the military, great, but just to do something without that higher purpose is less rewarding, I think. So the military is as good a place as any and an exceptionally strong and good place to give service, um, to serve something higher than yourself. 
and to be part of a team of individuals who's, uh, who are extraordinarily dedicated professionals for a common cause. So I, I'm a big advocate of the military and I, and I've said this to anyone who cares to ask me and there've been several. What is one war story from your military career that you would want your great grandchildren to hear? Oh my goodness. <laughs> my oh my goodness. Um, you know, there was, I, I don't know if it's the only, the best or whatever, but I'll, I, there was one time I, we did have in Afghanistan, a Marine who was a triple amputee and he came in and he had the need for quick vascular access or an IV and nobody could really get, there wasn't really a place almost to put the IV. And my brain went back to this moment. I was in the PICU during my pediatric training when we had to get an IV placed in a baby who was in intensive care. And I was with the pediatric intensivist and we were walking the halls of Walter Reed and she just, she couldn't get it. And she was the only one who could, who was really on deck to do that. And she just took a break and she walked around and then she went back to the baby and she put this IV or this central line in the groin and this extremely kind of deep approach and, and got IV and it was a real victory for her. And in that moment in Afghanistan, when this guy, the, the, uh, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist were attempting subclavian access. And I don't know what it was. I channeled that moment and I put, and I went for the femoral um, vein and I went in a very deep approach, just like she had in that moment in the PICU. And I got a flash and I got that IV in and it was, it was a moment that was really um, felt like all that training and all that time and all those nights were really worth it for this one Marine in that moment. I don't know. It was just a really, a moment I'm really proud of. What changes do you see in military medicine that will improve battlefield care, let's say in the next 10 to 20 years? I think the focus on, I think the focus on um, skill sustainment is really important. I mean, we have a very big organization with needs for all of individual talents to be used in so many different areas and people are tasked to be commanders and administrative leaders and, you know, strategic thinkers. And at the same time, we're also deploying people right, right out of those jobs back into the battlefield. So an emphasis on skill sustainment, I think will make us much stronger. And this development of individual critical task lists and focus on our placement into civilian organizations, we'll, we'll continue to maintain that tip of the spear skill set that we do in training that I think is really important. So I think that balance, I think we need to kind of switch. We need to come back into a balance where we're, yes, we're doing all this great leadership stuff, but we're also keeping our skills up. Well, Bonnie, it's been really great to have you on uh, War Docs, the podcast. You've had some great experiences, told some really good stories, and we just really appreciate your time. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks. It's been a great pleasure. I hope my grandchildren listen one day. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of War Docs Military Medical Podcast. We sure hope you enjoyed it. We invite you to subscribe to our show on whatever platform you consume your podcast so you don't miss an episode. Please feel free to leave a comment and a five-star review and share this with your contacts on social media. You can also follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. 
Find out more information about our show and our guests at our website, wardoxpodcast.com. That's wardoxpodcast, one word, dot com. If you like war stories and medical drama, Wardox has you covered. Spread the word.